Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. So it's just coincidence that I am arriving at this place in my own t- uh, study of Talmud this Shabbat. What I'm going to be doing for the next, it really should be an hour, but I'm going to, I'll, I'll keep it to 57 minutes. But I'm fine. Is going to be studying with you some portions of the section of the Talmud called Baba Kama because I completed the study of that just recently. And a traditional, when you complete the study of a section of Talmud, you do what's called a siyum, a completion. Um, it's just coincidence that this is the Shabbat I'm doing it, but it's actually, I'm relieved because I would have been very hesitant to try to follow Sebastian in saying anything of significance on Parshat Hazinu because he covered everything. So I'm glad that I have the excuse that I just get to focus on a random section of Talmud rather than draw things out of Hazinu. Uh, for those of you who may not know, the Talmud is the classic and lengthy and very challenging uh, rabbinic text of law and lore. Some people, including some people in this room, are on a program called Daf Yomi where every day they study one double-sided page of Talmud, which sounds easy if you think about, like, you know, what's, how hard is it to read two sides of a page? But every sentence of Talmud requires an enormous amount of foreknowledge and, um, and uh, you know, digging through the meaning. Uh, but they're committed to doing that, and that means they're going to finish studying the entire Talmud once every seven and a half years. I'm on a slower path. I'm doing what's called Dat Shvu'i which means in addition to pieces of Talmud that I study here and there, every week I study one, every week I study one page of Talmud. Uh, and I've just completed my Sechet Baba Kama, which is the longest of the books of the Talmud that I've ever studied in completion. I think it's about a hundred and, well, I know exactly what it is. It's a hundred and, um, 119 pages. Thank you. Um, actually 118, because I started on page two. And uh, this is what the Talmud actually, you know, looks like when you have it on your shelf. And this is the first time I have opened this book in the entire time of studying this tractate because it, everything is so convenient now on Safari and with, with digital apps. It kind of makes me sad because I love, I love the book of the Talmud, but it's just more convenient on your computer than to sit at the desk and open up this behemoth of a book. Okay. Um, in general, Masechet Bava Kama, which means the first gate, there are three tractates in the beginning of the order of Nizikin, which deals with laws of damages and jurisprudence. There's Bava Kama, the first gate, Bava Metziah, the middle gate, and Bava Bacha, the last gate. So the title of the tractate has nothing to do with the content. It's just telling you the first of three of, an, of a set. But it has to do mostly with damages, right? It's 119 rabbinic pages, uh, including lots of uh, tangents into different directions about what happens if you dig a hole in your property and someone else falls into it who's liable. And your animal kips, kicks up stones while it's walking to break someone's window. And you set a fire and it doesn't get into, in, in, under control and it damages someone else. So damages for the most part and liability and also the laws of robbery, right? How we uh, pay restitution if we have lost something that was entrusted to us or if we stole something. Lots of stuff about that. If we, I'm gonna, we're gonna study four sections. If we don't have time, only, only three. And they're sort of random in the sense that every one of the little sections of Talmud that I could have chosen uh, would have been interesting to share. Um, but I obviously am not going to study all of the t- uh, tractate with you. And the last one will be the last few lines because it's traditional at a seal that you actually complete the section of Talmud that you're doing. Okay. 
I'm going to warn you in advance that there are going to be a lot of references here that, that may not be familiar to you, and it's okay because each of these sections that I'm uh, teaching, I'm trying to draw one specific thing out of, so don't get too lost on the details. They do take a long time to understand. The first one, from the page 29a. The only thing you need to know before going to the first one is that Rabbi Meir, one of the rabbis of the Talmud, was considered to be, on this issue, more stringent than his colleagues. Right? More stringent on your obligations to things that might call other, other, other people damage. And his colleagues, which in the first section are just the collection of rabbis, and the second section of specific rabbis, were more lenient. Not irresponsibly lenient, but more lenient. Okay, so... After we've established that Rabbi Meir is a little more stringent, more stringent, the Talmud does something it likes to do, which is to say, yes, but this group conceded the point to that group on, in this category, and that group conceded the point to this group on that category. So, umodim chachamim, the sages, who were more lenient, agreed or yielded to Rabbi Meir, ba'avano sakino umasa'o, with a situation where your knife or your stone or a load that you were carrying, in what situation? Shehenichan berosh kago. Let's say you put all those on the top of uh, your roof, v'nafflu, and they fell down, and by falling down, they injured someone else. The ruach mitsuya, a uh, a found wind, which means a common wind. Veheziku shehu chayav. And if they injured someone else, even the sages agree, you have to be responsible for things that you leave high up. If even a regular wind would knock it off the roof, you can't claim, oh, I just put my stuff there. I wasn't trying to injure someone. By the way, a regular wind is actually a very timely phrase because we're about to start the holiday of Sukkot. And one of the laws of the holiday of Sukkot is that your sukkah, your booth, has to be stable enough that it withstands a ruach mitsuya, a normal wind. You want wind comes, you don't want it to knock it down. But it shouldn't be so stable that an abnormal wind, a very strong wind, knocks it down, right? It's actually supposed to be flimsy. So a hurricane, should, God forbid, should knock down a sukkah, right? So uh, here we're talking about whether or not it knocks down things that you own onto other people's stuff. And in the other direction, Moder Rabbi Meir, the Rabbanan, Rabbi Meir, who was the more stringent one, agreed to, to the rabbis, if you took your, your jugs of stuff onto a roof, to wipe them down or to clean them maybe with the rain, if they fell down from an unusually strong wind, and they injured people falling, shehupatur, that you are exempt. Rabbi Meir, who's normally stringent, says, you can't anticipate a tornado, right? Maybe now you can because you can see it on the radar, right? You should be able to anticipate, you know, light things that a normal wind could knock off. But a wind that you had no idea was coming, if something fell, it happens. You feel bad for the person it fell on, but you're not financially responsible. Rabbi Meir agrees, even though he's stringent. Next section. Um, this is a, a few uh, lines down. There's another disagreement between Rabbi Meir and another rabbi. This time it's a specific rabbi named Rabbi Yehuda. Ella Amar Abaye, Abaye, a later sage, a later sage said, Betarte plige. These two rabbis disagree on two things. Tarte is two in Aramaic. Plige bishat nefila, u plige la'achar nafila. They fight or they disagree on a situation where the damage happened at the moment that you put something down, the moment it fell. And they also uh, disagree on a situation where the damage happened after you put it down. Turn the page. In what situation do they argue about what happens when, the, in the moment of the fall? On the question of whether or not you're walking along and you stumble, you trip. You, you didn't see something on the, on the ground and you, and you fell and in falling you injured someone. They disagree as to whether or not you have any liability. 
Marsavar, one of them, and the one then is Rabbi Meir, the more stringent says, Nidkal Poshehu. If you trip, and by tripping, you damage something else, you are a transgressor. You, have, you are responsible, even walking the sidewalks of Los Angeles with lots of raised little things, you are responsible for knowing how to walk safely, and if you don't walk safely enough and you trip, you are considered liable. Umar Sabar, and the other one, Rabbi Yehuda, nitkal lav poshehu. He says, how can you prevent tripping? You didn't want to trip, so you should be exempt in that situation. You can feel bad for the person you injured, but you're not financially uh, responsible. And in what, what way do they argue after the thing had happened? Let's say you've got some stuff that, um, that you disown, right? Some stuff you don't, don't want anymore. I don't know, uh, half, half-filled containers of paint. In Jewish law, you can do something called lahafkir. You could say, I render it ownerless. I don't own it anymore. I bear no responsibility for it. So I'm walking down the street, it's too far for me to get to the recycling center, the dump. I put these things of paint done, and I say publicly, I do not own these things anymore. And I walk away from them. One of them says, and you'll know who it is, the more stringent one, Rabbi Meir says, Mafkir nizakad chayav. You cannot just leave things that might be causing damage to someone else and say, you have no connection to them by saying they're ownerless, and then walk away hands-free, you're obligated. Umar sabar partur. The other one, Rabbi Yehuda said, you can't be responsible for everything you ever own forever. At some point, you lose ownership over it. At some point, you say, I don't, this doesn't belong to me. And, and, and if after it no longer belongs to you, it causes damage to someone else, that's the way of the world. So this is a philosophic and a legal argument about how far our responsibility goes to the things that we own, lest they not cause damage to someone else. That's part number one. Okay, go to this next, next source, which is about 50 pages ahead in, on page 79. Totally different context. Sha'alu Tamidav Rabbanan Yochanan ben Zakai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakai, who was the lead rabbi of his generation, was asked by his students. Why is the Torah more stringent, and forget about how it's more stringent, with a thief than a robber? In English, those two words might be synonyms. In Mishnaic and Talmudic Hebrew, those two terms were very te- technical. A robber is someone who uh, robs someone in broad daylight, brazenly. A thief is someone who steals behind someone's back, breaks into your house, you're not there, and, and steals things. Our jurisprudence might suggest that a robber who does it out in the open and, and with some violence would be given a harsher punishment than someone who just broke in, broke in stole something, uh, but didn't encounter the person along the way. Right? If you encounter someone along the way and you threaten them, that's considered a worse punishment. But in the rabbinic system, the robber the one who did it publicly is dealt with more leniently than the thief. And they wanted him to know why. They wanted to ask him why. Turn to page three. Amar lehen. He said, This one, and we don't know which one it is yet, equalized the honor that he had for um, a servant as he had for the creator, Kono. And this one did not equate even the honor of his servant to the honor of his creator. If that seems a little bit like hard to decipher, I'll explain it to you. Why might Jewish law expect that the robber be dealt with more leniently than the thief? This is kind of, it's almost a backhanded compliment to the robber. At least the robber was not suggesting by doing it surreptitiously that God sees less than people does. 
If he does that in the open, he doesn't care what people think of him. He doesn't care what God thinks about him. But the thief who sneaks around so that no one sees him is almost suggesting, well, people are not going to see me, so I'll be fine. I don't care if God sees me. Because right? the notion that God is uh, omniscient and sees everything, it seems to be the thief is suggesting that God's understanding and view of the world is lower than humans. That's made more explicit in the next section. Kibyachol, as it were, asa ayin shamata ki'ilu ena ro'eh ve'ozen shamata ki'ilu eno shamat. The thief, the one who does it kind of surreptitiously, is making it as if the, the eye down below, which doesn't sound like it's suggesting to, like God's eye, you would think eye in, the eye above is God's eye, but it means God's eye which sees on the earth. Ki'ilu eno, as if it doesn't see. Ve'ozen shamata, and God's earthly ear, as if God doesn't hear. And then we'll skip the next section when he quotes three biblical verses that shows, uh, particularly in, um, in the prophets and the book of Psalms, the tradition uh, excoriating those who suggest that God does not see and hear in the world. So a thief is pretending that God does not see and, does, and, and sees less than a human being. That person is dealt with more harshly. Bottom of that page. Amar Rabbi Meir, Bo kamagadol koach shamalacha. Look and see how significant our tradition sees the value of labor. Shor arba'a. Again, this is very terse language. If you're looking at the English, the words in bold are just the words in the Talmud. The other words are the inter interpolations. When you've stolen something, depending on what you've stolen, sometimes to make restitution you owe five times the value what you stole. Sometimes four times the value that you stole. If you stole an ox and you return it, you have to return it plus five times its value. If you stole a sheep, you only owe four times. Why? Because Rabbi Meir says, the ox does work for the uh, person that it was stolen from. So when you took it away from him, he didn't just lose something that he cared about, he also lost the ability to be productive in his field. A sheep, is eventually going to be helpful to the animal, to the family by giving milk and by being eaten, but a sheep isn't a beast of labor. And therefore, you have to pay more restitution for a, be a, uh, a beast of burden than not, because Judaism values malacha. Judaism values labor. This was, remember, at a time where the most religious Jews were not spending all day studying yeshiva. They were farmers, and they were blacksmiths, and they were coopers, and they were um, beer makers, and they, had, they were productive in society. And so it's worse to steal from someone an animal that can be productive than an animal who can't be productive. The next one, which is the real reason I'm bringing this section, Amar Rabbi the same leader of that generation, said, Look how significant the notion of honor to human beings, to, the, to God's creations is. This is a different explanation for why a thief who stole an ox uh, or a, um, a cow owes more than if he stole a sheep. It has nothing to do with how productive the ox or the sheep is. It has to do with the experience of the thief. In order for the thief to have to uh, get the um, to uh, get the bull to come with him, right? He had to um, like uh, carry it on his carry on it uh, like pull 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 at the walk on its own legs. But the sheep that he um, had to schlep, uh, and because the sheep was not as willing to go, 
he only owes four. Why? Because it was embarrassing to the thief. Embarrassing to the thief to have to schlep a sheep in order to complete his thievery. It's a really interesting thing. What I pull out of this is that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai believes that the thief, who is the one who we deal with more stringently, even in the moment of thieving, is not denied our looking at him as a human being worthy of dignity. If in order to commit your sin, your crime, you have to do something to lower yourself, society requires that I have more empathy for you. Very interesting concept. Third one. Uh, Iteve, a rabbi named Rabbi Yirmiya, raised an objection. He raised an objection on a previous comment by Rabbi Zera. And in a previous comment, what did Rabbi Zera say? You can see it on the left side, that one is exempt from liability for one's animal propelling pebbles in the public domain. What's happening? I'm moving my ox, big clompy feet. He kicks up, kicks up stones, and in kicks up stones, it shatters my neighbor's uh, you know, vase containing oil or cruise of wine or something like that. And Rabbi Zera had said in the previous situation that in general, you're exempt from that. You're allowed to walk your animals in the public domain. It's not someone else's private domain. If his, his foot hoof kicks up a stone that breaks a bottle in the window of a storekeeper, maybe the storekeeper should have known that that could happen in the public domain. So in the previous statement, that's what Rabbi Zera had said. And now we have a, uh, a source which is supposed to push against that. We have a source that says that someone who's walking on the road, and he kicked up stones, he is obligated, even whether it happened in the public domain or the private domain. My lad, is this not, Rabbi Zera, a situation where it says, is this not the very situation where you said he's exempt, where he kicked up pebbles in the public domain, and it injured something else in the public domain, which would be a contradiction to what he previously said. Go to the top of page five. Rabbi Zera says, no, that's not the case. This is a case where Heitiza Bereshut Harabim, he kicked up pebbles in the public domain, the Hezika Bereshut Hayachid, but the damage he did was to someone's private property. And uh, that, the person is Chayat. But the Talmud knows that Rabbi Zera is actually not being 100% transparent. Because the Talmud says back then, but you yourself said in a different section, Akira in kan halacha yeshkan. It's a very hard phrase to understand, but basically, impact it means that somewhere else, Rabbi Zera had said that if the damage begins here, it can't end here. So you yourself said that if he kicks it up in the public domain, but the damage occurs in the private domain, he should be exempt. Amarle hadrebi. He said, I changed my mind. I love that. I love that. Rabbi Zera said, yeah, you're right. You caught me in a contradiction. I thought about it. I changed my mind. The other opinion made more sense. I'm not embarrassed to say that. Last one. And this is the end of the tractate. Tractates of Talmud sometimes end with grand flourishes, like really creative midrashic interpretations. And sometimes they just end with the last sentence. And you're like, this is the end, right? It's not... It's not a literary work the way you and I think of it, right? It's a collection of teachings and, and, and statements. Sometimes the rabbi had a, rabbis had a literary sense to end with a triumph. Sometimes it just ends. Okay, we're at Bavakama after 118 grueling pages, kind of just ends. Ve'im haya oseh etzel, da, da, da. This is a quote from an earlier Mishnah. You can look at the left side. If he was doing his work in the domain of a customer. This talks about like an artisan 
who is doing work where there might be leftovers from the work who owns it. So, I don't know, you give me, I'm a woodworker. You give me a big hunk of wood from, your, from, your, from a tree in your domain, and I'm sawing it down to make furniture. What happens to the stuff on the floor? The sawdust and the little pieces from, uh, from what's the, the, the um, it's called an ADZE, A-D-Z-E, like it cuts wood very thinly. So there'll be little strips of wood on the floor. Who owns it? Right? That's an interesting question, particularly, again, in a community that didn't have plenty. Right? We would think, do we really care? Because most of us don't care about the leftover piece of wood that we once owned. But if that wood could be used as kindling, if that wood could be sold, that's significant. Who owns it? So, that's the, uh, so, so the Mishnah said, it depends on um, where the work was being done. The Mishnah said, if he was doing his work in the domain of the customer, then even the sawdust belongs to the customer. Now back to the text. Tana Rabbanan, our sages taught. Mesatetei avanim. People who are chiseling stones, same issue, what happens to the things that have been chiseled? Not the, not the thing that was created, but the stuff on the floor. Ein behem mishum gezel. There's no violation of robbery if I, the chiseler, take the little pieces of stones on the floor. Everyone knows that nobody wants those back. Mefazgei ilanot. If you prune trees, mefazgei gfanim, or you prune grapevines, menakfei hegi, if you trim shrubs, menakshei zraim, if you weed plants, veodrei yirakot, if you hoe vegetables, all agricultural acts that might leave stuff that, that, the, that it's not the primary reason why you're doing it, you're doing it to actually preserve the good stuff in, in the center, but there are some uh, extra stuff that's there. What happens? If you're working in a home where the owner of all those things wants them, then if you take them, it's robbery. I mean, you can't just assume that they're worthless. We do this all the time, don't we? We assume that we, we make an assumption about what someone else considers valuable, usually to our benefit. If you're working in a situation where the owner of the property says that, they're, that they are uh, not worthless to them, they want them, then take them is gzeilah, it is robbery. Ein balabayat makpita lehen, hare ein But if the balabayat, the owner said, I don't care about the trimmings of the stone or the trimmings of the plant, of the vine, you can take everything that you've pruned. And then this is the way the Talmud ends the section and the, and the whole tractate. Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehuda, the same rabbi we had met before. Kishut, which is daughter, like uh, almost, we would consider it almost like um, like a weed, like greenery that you, most people don't say has any value. The chaziz, green grain that's already been um, picked, so it will no longer ripen, and it's not yet the grain that you can eat. Most people wouldn't have any need for that. Ein behem mishum gezel. They're so worthless, taking them is not thieving. Taking them is just basically like walking down a field that no one owns and picking a flower. But in places where they care about those things, maybe there's some places where they serve their uh, sheep daughter or they serve their, they serve their cows, chaziz. Uh, in those situations, if you take those things, then that is robbery. And this is how it ends. Ravina, Ravina, a much later sage, the sentence probably 200 years after the previous sentence, I just want you to know there's a place called Machasya. I want you to know that Machasya is a place where they care about daughter and green grain. If you go there and you're asked if you know to, to do something with them, they take their daughter very seriously, and taking it is considered thievery. On some level, 
It's a laughable end. Like, what? Like, that is not a mic drop. That is an asterisk. That is a footnote. But that's the way the Talmud ends. Okay, I began by saying that I picked these four things randomly, and I sort of did. because I, As I was going through the tractate over the last, uh, I, did, I did a page a week, so this has been over two years of studying this, I collected or held on to the things that I thought might be worthy of teaching, but not thematically. I chose these four, and after I chose these four, mostly because I just thought each of them would be interesting to teach, I noticed a pattern through them. Each of these texts, 2,000 years old on some level, is teaching something about an awareness in society that I think our contemporary society lacks or is too harsh about or is not willing to give enough attention to. In the first one, Rabbi Meir seems like a, like, like, like a hard guy that he's holding you responsible even for stumbling. But I don't think that we pay enough attention or give enough credence to what we owe to others when we do something mistakenly to harm them. It's a very hard lesson to teach children, right? And of all, all, all children, right? Children, when they make a mistake and they unintentionally hurt someone, their initial reaction is to say, it wasn't my fault, right? It is very hard to teach them to say, I didn't intend this, but I'm so sorry I hurt you. And I think that our society has to do a better job of taking in a, lit, a rep, little bit of Rabbi Mayer's wisdom and say, yeah, of course you didn't want to stumble. But if you stumbled, and in stumbling, you damage someone else's thing of value, maybe you ought to take at least some relational responsibility for it, and maybe some financial responsibility for it. Number two, how many of us have any dignity that we apply towards thieves and robbers? Once someone has committed a certain crime, we kind of write them off. Even if we don't um, send them to prison forever, Sometimes the realm of public opinion writes people off. Sometimes they lose their jobs. Sometimes they lose their friends. The first time they commit an, a, a truly egregious act, as if that person no longer has any dignity. And particularly in the area of social media and in this digital world we live in, no one gives any thought to the dignity that is due to a person that they are critiquing publicly. And I love that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai said, yes, that thief that stole your sheep, he's going to pay it back to you, but he's going to pay it back a little bit less than had he stolen his cow, your cow, because he already experienced some shame, schlepping an unwilling sheep to the public thoroughfare. I want us to not glorify thieves, but I want us to be a little bit softer to the people who make mistakes and even to those who commit crime because they are also creations of God. The third text Being able to say to your colleagues on an issue that you are known to be an expert on, I thought about it, you're right, I changed my mind, and to have that be recorded for two millennia, 2,000 years later, we know that Rabbi Zera was a lifelong learner because he said, you've caught me in a self-contradiction, you're right. That opinion that I once had was wrong. When was the last time you heard someone of, of repute say that. And then the last one, we tend to think that all places are the same. And the mores and the values and the expectations on the west side of Los Angeles are the same as they're going to be in West Texas or any place that has a majority of people who feel differently than us. It's a significant reminder that place matters, cultures matter, 
It doesn't mean that every place and every culture is equally valid, but we are not curious enough to know what's actually happening in parts of the world and parts of the city that we are not denizens of. And sometimes it's helpful to be reminded over there, that thing that not ma matters not at all to you, you couldn't care less about it, not either a physical thing that if it were stolen from you wouldn't ma matter, or a conceptual thing, it matters to them. Why? Go ask them. Be curious. But in Machasya, daughter mattered to them. That seems unfathomable to you. Well, guess what? What matters to you seems unfathomable to them. So in that regard, I think that the Talmud ended on a flourish, not on a nothing, but a reminder that if we're going to be engaging with people like us and not like us and creating a just and civil society, we've got to be curious about what makes them tick and humble about how we came to our positions and recognize that where you are and how you were brought up and who your parents were and what school you went to and what shul you went to and what culture you're a part of impacts how you think about the world. We should be more curious about that and maybe even more forgiving of that. And on that we say, Hadranalach Hagozal, Hagozal. We finish the chapter called Hagozal, the one who steals. Uh, but um, and we have completed the tractate of Masechet Babakama. I'm going to ask you to rise as I recite the words for the Siyum, and then we'll go on with Musaf. Uh, I'm not going to translate all this, but I'm sort of obligated to say it. But basically, it says, I promise to return to this tractate, you know, when I'm 190. Uh, <laughs> and I thank all the rabbis who are parts of it, and I thank God for, for giving me an opportunity to live a life of meaning and study and, and searching for. Uh, for ideas and for wisdom. I'm supposed to say uh, Papa was a rabbi who had lots of sons. Those are all his, his name, the sons' names, and they appear in different places of the Talmud. Maybe. Uh, fear your name and study your Torah. We who study Torah are involved in things that will last forever. Just as God, you help me to study this tract. Help me study others, and to complete them. 
Yes. <laughs> Uvrahamav, Yase Shalom, Alenu, Yako Yisrael, Yemru, Amen. And I'm now studying Tractate Gitten. So, in about a year, no, no, 50, I forgot how many pages. In about a year or so, come back and we'll learn all about the laws of Jewish divorce. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.